Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, why many farmers are concerned about a new executive order from Governor Newsom that could block them from drilling for more groundwater. And an exhibition featuring the work of African-American artists is headed to Bakersfield. But first, the other California, KVPR's podcast all about the San Joaquin Valley's small towns. This week's show focuses on Huron in Fresno County. And in this first story, reporter Carrie Klein introduces us to an innovative community ride-sharing service using a fleet of electric cars. David Mercado and I are sitting in a car in a parking lot. We're like 20 minutes early. (laughs) David is one of the drivers for the Green Riteros, a ride-sharing program that shuttles low-income Huron residents to medical appointments in electric cars. We're waiting at a dialysis clinic where he's picking up two patients. Here he comes. Enrique (laughs) Enrique Contreras has lived in Huron for more than 40 years, ever since he landed here from Michoacan as a teenager. All my life I was a lettuce worker, he says. I'm a good worker. In fact, the 60-year-old says he'd still be in the fields today if it weren't for his kidneys. My kidneys don't want to work anymore, he jokes. They're taking a break. Enrique needs dialysis three times a week. But the clinic is far from Huron, 20 miles away in Colinga. He doesn't have a license or a car, neither does his wife. And their four grown kids can't help. They also work the fields six days a week. You know how work is, he says. You don't show up, they fire you. Gregorio Hernandez doesn't have many options either. David's picking him up today, too. I'm going to have to go outside and help him with his bag. Gregorio was actually one of the first drivers with the green Riteros, but a stroke last year left him unable to drive and unable to speak much beyond yes and no. David asks him how old he is. ¿Cuántos años tienes ahorita? Uh, no. 60. Gregorio's wife can't drive either, so his last resort for dialysis is his daughter, who on a few occasions has driven up from Bakersfield, 90 minutes each way. This driving conundrum is why Enrique and Gregorio are getting a ride today with David. The Green Riteros is one of the first programs of its kind in the country. It's received national attention. And the best part? It's a free ride-sharing program. Um, yeah, it's totally free. We don't charge them because we understand, you know, their position and, and how they are. And, and um, so, you know, we love to do this for them. The program has been paid for by a patchwork of grants and donations, and half of the cars are on loan. Enrique says it's literally been a lifeline. It's incredibly important, he says. There's nothing else like it. Riteros is a Spanglish term for people sharing rides, and the green refers to the environmentally friendly cars. Our lift today, a shiny black Chevy Bolt, one of eight cars in the fleet, including Volkswagens and a BMW. It's so quiet. No, like, ignition sound? No, these are nice. The program is mostly used by seniors, farm workers, or both. It's an alternative to medical transportation vans, which load up with passengers and could stretch a 30-minute drive to two or three hours. Plus, they're not always free. Meanwhile, not all locals have smartphones to make use of Uber or Lyft. And while we're in the clinic parking lot, a bright green taxi pulls up from the city of Reedley, 60 miles away. That's far. He had to come from all the way over there. Wow. <laughs> That's going to be pricey. The rates are printed on the door. $2.50 per mile and another $0.45 cents for every minute of wait time. 
David's new to the Green Riteros, but driving has been a thread throughout his life. He grew up in Huron, but he left in his 20s, first exploring the country as a trucker, then operating vehicles in the Texas oil fields. After two decades away, enough time to raise four kids, he moved back to Huron in 2020. Yeah, it felt great, and I felt like I was home, and it's time for me to start helping out the community where I grew up. So the 47-year-old started looking for a job, and one of the first calls he made was to an old high school buddy. You've heard of him, Mayor Ray Leon. So I came back home and um, met up with Ray and ended up starting working here, and I love it. David's now the transportation coordinator of the Green Riteros, but when he's behind the wheel, it's obvious he's a pro. Always at the speed limit, hands at 10 and 2. He even seems fond of the drive from Huron to Kalinga, which he makes multiple times a week. The route is a slice of valley life. We pass two big employers in the area, a state prison and a psychiatric hospital. But the biggest, of course, is ag, the pistachio orchards, and the rows and rows of lemons, mandarins, and oranges. You see the cycle. You see them getting picked, you see them grow. And that, that's what I love about the San Joaquin Valley. It's just, there's a lot of growth here, and you know, it's farmland. <laughs> the route even passes a ranch where David's dad used to work, driving a motor grader. I worked here as well when I was in high school, so it just brings back a lot of memories. David used to be a farm worker too, just like his parents. His specialty was laying irrigation lines. David feels this program has helped him reconnect with his home, and it's also opened his eyes to the needs of the town. I, I take it real serious. I mean, I take it to heart because, you know, they've worked hard all their lives out here in the farms, and, and you know, they did their time. They did their time, and now it's time for, you know, us to take care of them now. After 20 years away, he's returned to the home he grew up in to look after his aging parents. For The Other California, I'm Carrie Klein in Huron. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Staying with The Other California podcast and the town of Huron, reporter Sarith Hawk tells us about the extra effort high school students make just to get to class taking a bus to another town 20 miles away. It's an issue that locals have contended with for decades, including a retired teacher who started the movement to build a high school in Huron 18 years ago. For 31 years, Dolores Silva taught elementary school in Huron and Avenal. The second graders were her favorite, she says. And even though so many years have passed and I... Uh, sometimes a, a, a parent will come and say, oh, my son or my daughter just love being in your class. And I say, well, thank you for telling me. <laughs> the 85-year-old is in her home in Huron, where she lives with her youngest son, Ben. She's lived here most of her life. We just love our little town. <laughs> Sitting on a bright yellow couch in her living room, Dolores's face lights up with laughter. We have a lot of good people. A lot of good people. And they're all hardworking people, you know. Dolores is one of them. In 2004, two years after retiring from teaching, Dolores returned to education at the age of 67, this time as a member of the Kalinga Huron Unified School Board. The biggest request from residents in her district? Build a new high school in Huron. The city has one elementary school and one middle school. There's a continuation school in Huron, but the main high school is 20 miles away in Kalinga. Almost 100% of the students take a bus. And it was that way when Dolores was a teacher. It was so hard for them, you know, getting up real early in the morning to catch the bus to go to Kalinga. Hard getting up and hard staying awake at night. When they got home, they, they still had to do their homework. And they were exhausted. Dolores was also bused to Kalinga until she graduated high school in 1956. So in 2004, as a board member, she led the effort to build a new high school by galvanizing the community. In 2012, a petition was started to split the school district into two separate districts. Five years later, the State Department of Education shot down the plan. The district superintendent says Huron failed eligibility tests for funding and diversity. Most recently, the effort has been dedicated to building a new high school, but not a separate district. And Dolores says she's still motivated to help in any way she can. So I'm, I'm old. Yeah. 
but I feel good. <laughs> and I don't give up. <laughs> I don't know when the good Lord is going to take me, but I'm here trying to stay alive and do as much as I can. Her son, Ben, is now driving the push, organizing community meetings and speaking with district officials. He says building a high school in the city is about more than just quality of education. It's about community pride. Uh, that's why the, the school needs to be called here on high school. All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Want to start this? Just last month, families in Huron packed a Kalinga Huron Unified School Board meeting. It was standing room only as parents and community members lined up to speak. Many said their children must get up before sunrise to catch the bus. When I wake up to go to work, five in the morning, there's kids out here. Kids out here cold. I want to make it clear that the parents have said they want a high school. For Spanish speakers, there was a translator. One high school student who attended the meeting spoke of feeling tired and not getting enough sleep. That's why she's not playing soccer. Well, I like sports, but at the same time, it's like getting home late and not having time to do work. According to the Kalinga Huron Unified School District, out of about 1,200 students at Kalinga High School, just over 400 are bused from Huron. The district says commute times are as long as an hour. One person attending the board meeting, Rosa Moreno. She volunteers for Huron social service programs. That includes helping students apply for grants and find a way to get to college. They're so smart. All they need is a little help. Mm-hmm. a little guidance. The 53-year-old knows. One of seven kids, Rosa says she, like most of her siblings, left school to support the family. The long bus ride only made attending school worse. I guess at the beginning, like right after I dropped out, I was too busy working in the fields, helping my mother. And then I had kids, so my priority was them. She got her GED and attended a community college after she realized she needed to help her own six children succeed. Once they started growing and asking me about algebra and other things, I'm like, I need to go to college. <laughs> yeah, that's what made me my children. At the board meeting, trustees voted unanimously to move forward with the feasibility study to look into building a high school. At our district office in Colinga, Superintendent Lori Villanueva says funding remains the issue. It's always been in our sights. The question is having the eligibility, having access to the funding. Lori says the district would have to meet certain eligibility requirements, like overcrowding, which hasn't happened yet, to get more state funding to build a high school. For now, kids will continue to endure the long bus ride to school. For The Other California, I'm Sarith Hawk in Huron. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. The protracted battle over the future of Fresno's Tower Theater turned a corner yesterday when the city council voted four to three in favor of purchasing the building from its current owners. But despite the vote, lingering questions remain over how the historic theater will be operated and where money to buy it will come from. I discuss those questions and more with arts critic Donald Monroe of the Monroe Report. Well, first of all, let me just say you have been on top of this Tower Theater controversy for more than a year now from the very beginning. So there is no one in the world I would rather be talking to at this moment than you. So thank you, Donald Monroe, for being on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. So I I love to be on your show. Oh, thank (laughs) you. So I should note that as we are recording this conversation, uh, it is Thursday afternoon. The city council has yet to vote on their proposal to purchase the Tower Theater. Uh, So we don't know how it's going to play out. However, Um, I still think there's a lot to talk about because the proposal in and of itself is quite complex. Can you just break down what exactly it is that the city council is is voting on? Well, like you say, it it is complex. And the way it has been explained to me is that the city wants to step in 
buy the entire parcel, which includes the Tower Theater and then the Mianeds uh, parcel and then the, the brewery parcel, then turn around and the brewery will buy its parcel from the city, but the city is going to be guaranteeing that loan because I I think it's hard to get a commercial loan when there are uh, protests going on and and you know possible legal complications. Um, and then would would keep the city would keep the parking lot public and then run the theater as a I don't know how how the city would decide to run the theater. That's kind of one of the, the lingering questions that I don't know the answer to yet. On your website, you've been writing about this and uh, you've expressed some concerns about the city of Fresno's track record when it comes to running theaters. Uh, what are your worries? Yeah, I, I just point to uh, two of the theaters that, that the city does own. Um, that would be the Fresno Veterans Memorial Auditorium downtown, and then of course the Soroyan Theater. And there have been issues for a number of years about both those facilities. The, the Veterans Memorial very nearly got shut down completely because of unsafe conditions inside. Um, it's been given kind of a temporary reprieve and I'm not sure how much money or attention the city has, has paid to it um, in, the, in the past year or so. Um, but it's basically used by children's musical theater works. And there was this concern, okay, we're sending our kids to this city facility that isn't even safe. So that's one concern I have. If it, if it can't keep its facilities safe, that's, that's an issue. Uh, the Sororian, of course, is, is run by a private management company. And I have been talking to arts groups for the past couple of years who are just furious and scared of this company um, because they feel that the rental rates are going way up, that there are issues with the building. Um, and we have had long-term issues with things like acoustics, the house sound system. Uh, I, I've heard estimates of anywhere from you know, four to $6 million could easily be spent on the Soroyan getting it up to what you consider to be industry standard. So with those two examples, that's where I start to get a little, a little hesitant about the idea of the city also running the tower. Fair enough. Well, you know, as, as I mentioned before, we, we don't know what the decision is going to be yet, but it is expected to pass. And if it does, then there, the city would be using funding from a variety of sources to uh, purchase this uh, theater. Talk a little bit about the money side of all of this. So that is also a big fuzzy question mark for me right now. The B reported that funds from Measure P, which was the city initiative, sales tax initiative that supports the arts and mostly the parks system, but also the arts, um, that money from Measure P would be used in some way, either in acquisition or in operating costs. And so some of the folks I've talked to have come right back and said, wait a second, Measure P doesn't say anything about the Tower Theater. And in fact, Measure P requires that a cultural arts master plan be completed before the, the money is dispersed, which is one reason why no one's gotten any Measure P money yet. And they are worried that if Measure P money is used to support the tower, that will be, um, that will essentially take money out of the pot that would have gone uh, to these sort of starving arts groups that I can assure you have just been desperately waiting uh, for Measure P funding to kick in. Well, and then there's the other issue that you raised, which is that theoretically, if the city didn't want Adventure Church to operate in the Tower Theater, it has other ways in which they can stop those meetings other than purchase the building, right? Right. And 
I don't know. I don't have any insight information that why the city hasn't just stepped in and tried to enforce the zoning regulations that are already in place, which if, if you were to follow what the zoning is for that parcel right now, it's not meant for a community or religious assembly. And I suspect that the city is afraid of getting into a lawsuit that is going to be solely decided on the religious freedom issue. There is speculation that there were some, some power players who wanted to use the Adventure Church um, situation as kind of a test case, perhaps even take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has a more conservative bent this, you know, now. And I'm just, I'm thinking maybe the city doesn't want to get into that sort of protracted uh, religious freedom battle. That's that's my best guess. So if this purchase goes through, do you think that's the end of this saga? Or is this just going to continue to yeah. weigh over the, the Tower District? Well, if, if it goes through, Adventure Church has already said it, it is it plans to sue. And also, Adventure Church is actually suing the owner of the Tower Theater right now anyway. So um, there's there are a lot of like legal clouds hanging above things. But I suspect that that could be resolved in court and that there will be a resolution. The question is, what if Adventure Church still wants to rent it? And I know that some people in the tower I've talked to are worried that once the city takes over, then they will not have to follow their own zoning regulations anymore because it belongs to the city. And that somehow there's some deal being struck with Adventure Church. I don't know if that's the case or not. But I think that there is still the possibility that there's going to be a lot of controversy still to come. And, and I should say, too, that I'm trying to take a stand back attitude on this because I don't want to see the Tower Theater being you know, sold to a church. But I'm also concerned about what it would mean for the city of Fresno to run the Tower Theater. Well, and then there's just all the many months of emotion attached to this controversy that, you know, I, I don't think it's going to just be, you know, turn off with the flick of a switch. Oh, I agree. And and I talked to, to one Tower supporter yesterday who, who told me that people in the Tower are not going to hold a, a ticker tape parade if this deal goes through. They support the sale, but they're also very wary because they feel like the city has not been completely transparent um, in a number of different dealings. And so they're on guard and they've already told me that they are, <laughs> they're going to be keeping really close watch on what happens next. Well, while I have you here, let's switch gears and talk about something a little bit more uplifting sure. Talk about the, the local arts scene. So what are some of the, um, the things happening in the Valley uh, now and in, in the future that, that you're really excited about? One thing that I really want to point people to is uh, this exhibition at Arte America's uh, Boom Oaxaca, which uh, I know that KBPR did a, a very nice story on that a while back. And it is really a beautiful exhibition. It, it's an original exhibition. It's supported by the McClatchy Fresno Arts Endowment. And the, the, the original intent was, was for the endowment to bring in traveling shows that were of really high quality. But Arte said, well, what if we are able to put together a homegrown show that is you know, of that, that quality? And they did on the budget that they were given. And so it's, it's a, a, a real testament to Oaxaca, to, that, to, the, to the art and culture of that very important part of Mexico. And of course, we have so many people from Oaxaca who live in, in the, the greater valley area. And I just think it's a, it's a great way to kind of immerse yourself in that culture. That sounds amazing. What about um, on the performing arts side? Yeah, so so there are um, there's some nice th nice things coming up. Uh, the Fresno Philharmonic is going to be performing May eighth, and they are back at the Saroyan Theater. And I can tell you that I was there 
for their last performance at the Sorian just last month. And it was such a joy <laughs> to hear a full orchestra because you can't have a full orchestra on the stage of the Shigoyan Hall, which was where they were playing before. And so I'm really looking forward to that. It's a, it's a Mahler um, concert. And uh, at Fresno State, uh, they will be doing the musical Rent. It's the 25th anniversary of that show. And Fresno State only does a musical every other year. So that's kind of a big deal in itself. Um, I'd say a couple other theater, or, or at least one other uh, theater offering not to miss is uh, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which is at Good Company Players and has a wonderful cast, some of their best performers. In fact, they have so many good performers, they divided the cast up. So you could actually go on a Thursday night and see a whole different cast than Friday night, <laughs> which is what I did because I love that show so much. Wow, that's committed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's a really funny, sweet show with some wonderful music. And we have a couple uh, minutes before we need to wrap up. Anything else? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can talk for a long time about all the good stuff that that's uh, coming up. We're coming up uh, actually on our last weekend of another good company show that's at the Second Space Theater. It's called Enchanted April. It's uh, pretty fun to be able to see a show with that title when it's actually the month of April. And this was the show that actually was the last thing that was performed at GCP before the pandemic. And so it had to shut down after just a couple of weeks. And for, I'd say a year to year and a half, the, the actors just thought that that was gonna be it. They would never be able to do the show again, but Good Company decided to, to bring it back and it has mostly the same cast. And it's, it just kind of adds to the sweetness of, of this story. So I, I, I recommend that show as well. And that actually plays through um, April 24th. Uh, looking ahead uh, to the summer or just into, into May, I know that a lot of people are really excited about this Van Gogh show that is going to be coming. Have you heard much about that or have you actually seen? Well, I've, I'm one of the, the people that's show? really excited about it. Okay. 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 <laughs> yeah. So it's played in other cities. It was played in San Francisco and San Jose. And it it is really, I am told, an impressive visual experience. And for a while, we were wondering, where is it even going to go? Is there, is there a big enough space that can, can take something this big? And it turns out it is going to be at the convention center. And that opens on May 27th. It runs for a while. It, it, I think it runs for a couple months. But in other locations, uh, this type of show has, has actually sold out the entire run. So that might be something that people, if they, if they want to think about planning ahead, uh, that's a, a ticket that, that they definitely could get. Thank you for the warning. I will be buying tickets today. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Monroe, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A drought-related executive order by Governor Gavin Newsom has raised fears among the agricultural community that it amounts to a moratorium on drilling new groundwater wells. But as you'll hear in this next interview, there's reason to believe the effects won't be that severe. Reporter Carrie Klein spoke about the order with Don Wright, publisher of Water Rights, a website that provides water policy information to the agricultural community. So Don, to begin with, what is Executive Order N-7-22, and particularly the point that's drawing the most attention? The Executive Order was issued at the end of March by Governor Gavin Newsom. In a lot of ways, I think it was about him showing that he was doing something. He was under a lot of pressure. We're, in a, we're definitely in a major drought this year. And he, he wanted to show that he was doing something. The big item that's causing the most heartburn is item 9A and B. And in that it says that whoever's issuing a well permit, and for our purposes, it's almost always the county. 
for the type of wells we're talking about. This doesn't have any impact on domestic wells that draw less than two acre foot annually, but it was, does have a major impact on ag wells and, and those are issued by the county. Fresno County happens to be the Department of Health for some reason issues that well permit. Other counties, it's the Public Works Department. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. And what it says is that a groundwater sustainability agency needs to review these permits before the county can issue them. And they have to determine, does this well cause any harm to the groundwater sustainability plan? They have to take a look that the well itself will not harm the GSP's progress, the plan's progress. Then there's a subpart B, and this is not getting as much play, but it's also very, very rough. Part B says that it will not cause any subsidence or interfere with the neighboring well. All right, so what does all that mean? On the surface, it sounds like the county should not issue any well permits to drill new wells until the Groundwater Sustainability Agency approves it. There's a school of legal thought that says it could be challenged on the idea that you you can drill a well. However, SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, does have provisions that, that can prevent how much could be pumped. And a farmer told me the other day, it's not how many holes are in the ground, it's how much is being pumped out. So that has sent a, a, a shockwave through the ag community, through the GSAs, the Sigma community, and of course the counties. Okay, so from what it sounds like is the executive order, you know, where where most of the responsibility, where all of the responsibility in permitting new new agricultural wells had been in the hands of counties before, this executive order now takes some of that and says, actually, we need these other agencies, these groundwater sustainability agencies, um, to actually sign off on these wells. And of course, these these agencies were created under the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, as you said, Sigma. They're shortened to GSAs. It's a big alphabet soup here. Their plans are GSPs. Um, but so it sounds like many are interpreting this as the state actually trying to limit how many of these wells can be drilled. I'm not sure that was the state's intention, Carrie. I think uh, it's one of the unintended consequences. Um, and if we had a dollar for every unintended consequences, I'd split it with you and we could go live any zip code we want. It's just, I don't know. I've asked several times too, and I've not been able to get through to the governor's office. I don't know who his press secretary is, but I've asked who writes these things because whoever wrote this order is disconnected completely from the Sigma process and the understanding of it. Here's a couple of things to consider. A lot of Sigma's First off, it's it, the implementation of it is only two years old, and the data that has to be gathered is not by any stretch complete. So you're asking a GSA to opine what's going to happen 20 years from now if we drill this well. That's impossible. Not to mention these 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 agencies, these GSAs already quite have their hands full at the moment revising their sustainability plans that the state has asked for. They are not, yes, they're in the middle of the revision of, of these plans. Uh, they, they, they're often very, the staffing on some of them is not real large. You know, what happened with Sigma is the state came in and said, you guys shall create a new government bureaucratical layer without paying for it. Now the state, in its typical fashion, I've worked with the county before. I used to work for Fresno County and seen many times they come in with unfunded mandates. This looks like another disconnect in that area. I want to I want to bring up that part B though about the the problem for the subsidence, or that the uh, the well could impact another person's well. That isn't clear if that's part of the GSA's uh, review process. It's a whole another area that that can't really be determined. Okay, so this is the so this is the perspective largely of the agricultural community. A lot of concerns, some fears, sounds like some frustration, perhaps some anger. 
But of course, there are groups that are celebrating this. You know, there are a lot of water nonprofits and advocacy groups that think that this is an essential part of coming into um, compliance with the groundwater, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or and of just simply of coming into balance with our groundwater use. And you've also, um, as part of your reporting, you've spoken with Paul Goslin, uh, an administrator with the Department of Water Resources. I, I, I know earlier you, you referred to this as an as a unfunded mandate. I know he has said that that's not that. Talk a little bit more about your discussion with him. To my surprise, Paul Goslin's a fine gentleman, and he has an actual background in dealing. I believe he worked for a GSA as an administrator before moving over to uh, the Department of Water Resources, though I couldn't swear in a Bible but he understands it. He said a couple of things that I thought were very interesting when we talked. The GSAs cannot veto a well permit. They don't have the legal authority to. Even with this order, Sigma would have to be rewritten to give a GSA the authority to veto a well permit. They said the idea behind this was to have the counties are the issuing bodies and the GSAs working in better coordination, which is a noble goal and should be. But again, I don't know who writes these things for the governor and if they realize that that process was already underway uh, by and large. But from Mr. Gosling's perspective, uh, I, you know, it, it wasn't something to get his panicky over. So should that be some consolation to folks in the ag community that perhaps yeah. this is not going to be as severe uh, a executive order as they're anticipating? I think so, because throughout the entire Sigma process, and I followed it from the in conception, the Department of Water Resources has a lot of faults, but being responsive isn't one of them. And I think that even though they are the ones that have they're reviewing the groundwater sustainability plans right now. I've not heard any complaints about their willingness to step in and help. And, and you know, honestly, these meetings, people complain about the government a lot. So for them to come away with as good a clean a track record as they have is actually refreshing. And one of the first times I've heard such a thing in 20 years of reporting water. That's very interesting. Well, so, you know, when we talk about drought resilience in California, and as we enter yet another year of drought here, you know, is there a way to bring our groundwater use into check without an executive order like this and without considering the groundwater, the future groundwater use implications of, uh, of new agricultural wells? Well, I was on, a, it's interesting, I was on a seminar for water reporters earlier this week, and I kept hearing we're, we're managing for, for lack we should be managing for plenty. There's as much water now as there was 100,000 years ago on Earth. And there's as much water now as there will be 100,000 years from now on Earth. The problem is it's in the wrong spot at the wrong time. On the average year, more than 10 million acre feet of water pass through the delta during flood flows, during the snowmelt time. Now, this this is 10 million acre feet above what's needed for environmental uh, you know, habitat. So what do we need in the valley? We need 2 million acre feet more. We have had uh, 1.2 million acre feet that was historically water, surface water for agriculture was taken away over, uh, it's called the Central Valley Project Improvement Act. We're going to have to fallow a million acres if we don't address what's happening. What could happen is you could take that during that 10 million acre feet that's going out during that flood time, you could capture 20% of that if we had the right infrastructure and, and could upgrade our fish screens. We could make ourselves not whole. There'll still be some land fallowed, but we could make ourselves pretty much whole. So it sounds like you're saying that there's a lot more that water officials could be doing to conserve water, including letting less of it run from reservoirs to the oceans. And then it sounds like you're saying maybe those should take a higher priority over um, over restricting or just more tightly regulating groundwater use for agricultural users. Yeah, the, there's, I mean, we do have to control our pumping. It's, it's vital. We cannot just pump pump our aquifer dry, that, that ruins it forever. 
There's a thing called subsidence that we hear about. When you pump too much water out of a certain soil type, there's these layers of soil. There's a lens, or they're called lenses also, um, of clay. There's a type of clay that when you extract the water from it, it compresses and you're never gonna get water back in there and you've ruined your underground storage. So what we have to concentrate and focus on is not limiting pumping only. We have to concentrate on getting more recharge into the aquifer itself. And that, and there's a relatively simple, the engineering's done, it's proven. Uh, it's a benefit to wildlife beyond what we're currently doing. I think there's people that just don't want they just decided they don't like agriculture in the valley. I read a thing. <laughs> I read a thing by the, uh, and I also came out of the governor's office, I believe it was part of the water resilience package. And they said the San Joaquin Valley is one of the most ecologically altered and degraded parts of the entire state. And I'm going to ask you this Who do you think is more ecologically altered, the San Joaquin Valley or the San Francisco Peninsula or the Los Angeles Basin? I think there's a lot better ecology taking place here in the valley than there is either of those metropolitan areas. So let's not get too high on our horse. So there's some biased language coming out of the governor's office. I, I think there's been biased language from a long time. Don Wright is the publisher of Water Rights. That's W-R-I-G-H-T-S. Don, thanks so much. .net, and you are very, very welcome. God bless you. And finally, a trio of exhibitions opening next week at the Bakersfield Museum of Art explore identity, race, and what it means to be human. To learn more, I spoke with museum curator Rachel Rainwright, who started the conversation by sharing how it took years for the museum to acquire a traveling exhibition of work by African-American artists. Yeah, so in 2015, um, I was sent a proposal for Personal to Political, which is a group exhibition that celebrates the African-American artists of the Pulse and Bontane Press. Um, This was curated um, up at Bedford Gallery in Walnut Creek. And when I received the proposal, it was incredibly intriguing. A few artists that I was very excited about. I had just seen a Carrie James Marshall show at MOCA. Um, I, of course, always been incredibly infatuated by the the G's Bend quilt makers um, of the South. And so there were some names that were really intriguing and some names that I had no idea about. Um, and, And a group show like this, when it falls into your lap, uh, it's it's an incredible opportunity, and I was really excited for that opportunity and to bring it to the valley. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't realize that the um, that this opportunity first presented itself to you so so many years ago. Certainly, the world has changed since then, and I would imagine this exhibit takes on new meaning or new relevance in light of what we've been through over the last couple of years. You know, undoubtedly, it's uh, as as we went through um, the pandemic and the uh, Black Lives Matter and the protests and how how vastly our world changed since 2020. I was was happy to be able to look forward to this exhibition and know that um, it it would be a bright light and also something that we had, uh, an initiative we had really started working toward diversifying our programming here at the museum before that. And now we're finally seeing it come to fruition. You know, we plan our exhibits at least two years out. And in this case, it was over five years out. Um, But a lot of the topics that are discussed within the contemporary pieces and by the artists in this show are have always been relevant, but are incredibly hot topics right now, you know, dealing with um, police brutality and and really the the black American experience. You know, that was one thing that that jumped out at me in thinking about this show. You know, one of the things that it highlights is that, you know, obviously there is no singular black experience, you know, and each of these artists is bringing, you know, their own unique experience uh, to their work. But in the curation of of these um, pieces of art, it does point to something that is more collective, that is uh, more universal about about the black experience, and, and that was something that I thought was really powerful. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the the variety of work that's represented, the variety of artists that's represented, 
it embodies the diversity of those experiences. And many of these artists look at things that are a very serious topics. Some of them are much more playful in their understanding of um, th their reality. You know, there's, there's historical um, understandings of work. Some of these artists are dealing with just strictly identity, which is a universal topic. There's a personal narrative. Um, their spirituality and and so these are universal topics and and really approaching the black experience from a variety of angles and then tell us a little bit about uh, the exhibition itself i understand there's a figurative work there's abstract work what what, what can people expect yeah you know it, because this is all work from the pulse and fontaine press that there is most of the work happens to be categorized as a print. But you have to remember that just a print is not a carbon copy. You know, there are so many ways that you can approach printmaking and artists in this show have done, uh, it's an incredibly diverse way, um, a grouping of prints in the show. But in, in addition to the prints that are made, there are, like I mentioned, the, um, the quilts, there are some sculptural works, um, there are some 2D kind of relief works and um, an installation piece as well. Well, let's talk about some of the other um, exhibitions that are going to round out the spring season. Tell me about Under the Kern County Sky. Yeah, Under the Kern County Sky is um, work by artists, local Bakersfield-based Thai-born artist, Prapat Serena Bharat. Um, Serena Bharat moved to Kern County in 2003 um, after studying printmaking in Bangkok and came here to open a restaurant, Singha Thai, with his family, uh, has maintained a dedicated art practice, and you, his work has been um, available to be viewed within the restaurant. They, his family also owns a restaurant in Lancaster. Um, and we've had a relationship with Prapad, and he's always submitted work for any of our local call to artists, our art, um, our visual arts festival, or our uh, art off the wall sale that we do every year. And we thought this was an incredible opportunity to highlight the work of a local artist, but that's doing really high level work. His work is incredible in that it explores the, the sublime, it explores our relationship to the universe and these beautiful surreal compositions that kind of play with place and, and where we fit within the world, the place that we call home. And then the other exhibit that's rounding out the season is drawn from your permanent collection. Mm -hmm. And it, I understand it explores how artists use the human figure to express identity. Yeah, you know, there, this is one of the oldest uh, subjects in art making is, you know, as soon as we, as far back as we can look at uh, or find evidence of humanity documenting, um, we see the human form is used to document. And we look at, we pulled from our permanent collection. We've been a collecting institution since our, um, since we began in 1955. And we now have over 400 objects, all loosely tied to California somehow and made in the 19th century to the present. So looking at that collection and really we we've, were able to put together an incredible show that explores how the figure has been used and and kind of pulling in from the personal to political show we have some um an artist javier carrillo who uses the figure as um, protest um, in his depiction of uh, mexican americans and their process of immigration from mexico to america uh, we have you know the uh self-portraits. We have a film that will be showing, a surreal film from the 1940s. Um, so really talking about how the figure, once it's put in motion, how that changes the way artists can depict self. Um, so a dynamic show with a multitude of mediums represented. You know, in listening to you talk, there definitely seems to be a thematic through line that connects all three of these exhibits. I would imagine that was intentional on your part. You know, uh, often like let, we we book these shows so far out and really I'm looking at each gallery space as a separate entity this happened to be a very beautiful coincidence and I think is more representative of the uh, direction 
that we want this museum to be going and we want this museum to of course celebrate the visual arts but really to celebrate the visual arts ability to tell the human story and 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 embody the diversity of that story and i think that these exhibits really do that very well and i'm, I'm proud that they are all going to be showing together and um that this this round of shows is truly representative of this community and and we hope that the community feels that well, tell me the details. When do all of these um, uh, exhibits open? The exhibits open next Thursday, April the 28th. We have our um, preview circle reception at six o'clock. We open to the public at seven. And from then out, we are open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to four. Well, and then before I let you go, I would love to give you an opportunity to plug your podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we... Um, you know, it was one of these pandemic necessities that came that fell into our lap. We weren't able to do um, lectures anymore on site. So we decided we could create a audio podcast. So we developed the BMOA podcast, which is available through Apple, um, Spotify, anywhere you listen to your podcast and pro has provided a great opportunity for us to go in a little deeper with each of these artists. Um, for our last show, we did a eight series where we interviewed each or many of the artists on display and it you know provides all of our community and um, visitors the opportunity to learn more about each artist's work we spend about 30 minutes to an hour with each artist that has to be an, a, another interesting way for you to connect with the community and and to to deepen your engagement with your audience uh, yeah exactly you know i as a curator and working on on exhibitions, one of the most rewarding parts of my job is getting to go into the studio and hearing directly from the artist why a piece was made. And um, really the, the, the initiative behind the podcast was providing that to anybody who listened, that really intimate, unique experience to hear directly from an artist about why they are creating, what are their motives, what how their life led them to this point. And of course, yeah, it just, um, it's, for another way we can engage with our community. Well, I've been talking with Rachel Wainwright, the curator of the Bakersfield Museum of Art about the upcoming spring collection that will be uh, opening next week. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mathi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org/health-equity.